0: Well, last sermon at Stagg High School. I hope you brought your Bibles. You got your Bibles? You got your Bibles? Open up your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 3. Uh, we are going through the letters written to real churches uh, in the uh, Apostle John's time. And he wrote them on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ with some specific direction for their church. And I thought, as I was planning out the sermons, this would be the best passage to preach for our last Sunday here. Because the church in Philadelphia was told by Jesus, I have set an open door before you. And how fitting is that? How appropriate is that? As the Lord has set an open door before us to go through it into a new phase of ministry, I thought that would be a great passage for us to hear about uh, from the Lord. Uh, But speaking of doors, let me ask you this. Honesty time. How many of you have actually locked yourselves out of your own home at a time? (laughs) You actually locked yourself out of your own home. Yeah, for me, uh, it was Christmas Eve several years ago. Lauren and I went to several family parties and then headed back home. So it was late. It was cold. It was snowing. Our kids were younger. They were in the van. And we pulled up into the driveway, opened the garage, and then I thought, "Uh uh-oh, my house key is in the house. I forgot to put it back on my key ring. So I went into the garage, sure enough, the garage door to the house was locked, went all the way around the house, it's like midnight, right? All the doors were locked, I even checked the windows, you know, because you get desperate. (laughs) There was no way for me to get into our house because the house key was in the house, I didn't have the key. So Lauren's sitting in the van just watching me, you know, and uh, I actually had to get the power drill and drill through the the doorknob and take it off. To get us back into the house. Why? Because I didn't have the what? Because I didn't have the what? No key. No key. Listen, when Jesus says, I have set a door before you and I have opened it, he's the one who places the open door before us. You know the frustration when there's a door you can't open. Jesus is going to talk to us today about a door that he places in front of us and a door that he opens before us. Let's pray together and then we'll get into the word. Father, we understand that you have opened the door for us. You allowed, uh, by the grace of the stag administration, you allowed us to be here. Uh, we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for them. And uh, Lord, now you've uh, closed this door and you've opened up another one. Uh, we pray just that you would uh, help us, Lord, as we commemorate this service here. Help us as we look ahead to know what it means to seize the opportunity that you present before us to go through the door, to do it faithfully to keep our eyes on you while we do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, just to give you a little background, there are seven churches that received letters in the book of Revelation. Uh, Here's a map of where the churches were. Uh, The map shows the green dots. We've already covered uh, Ephesus, Smyrna, Sardis, Thyatira, Pergamum, uh, and Philadelphia is where we're at today. Uh, And then uh, next week, we'll talk about Laodicea. They all got a letter. So this is to Philadelphia. uh, And in chapter 3, we're in verse 7, it says this. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. Here's the first thing you can write down. Uh, Hey, write this down. Go through the open door. Go through the open door. Christ has opened the door so that you can go through it. He alone could open it. He alone did open it. And he did it so that you will walk through it faithfully. You have to know who it is that opened the door to understand why you can even get through it. He says here, if you look back in verse 7, the words of the Holy One. Hey, who did Jesus claim to be? He claimed to be the holy one. Do you know what the word holy means? Holy means set apart from sin. Holy means uh, set apart from sin, consecrated. Now listen, you can be made holy, but because we're born and we're sinful and we've sinned, someone else has to actually make us holy. Someone else has to, at a point in time, set us apart from sin, but not Jesus. Jesus says, I am the holy one meaning he's claiming an attribute of God, which is holiness. You can only become like that if God makes you like that, but Jesus says, he says, I am that. Well, Maybe you have a family member who sometimes says, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Where did Jesus claim to be God? Hey, right here, he says, I am the Holy One. He also says, I am the true one, the true one. Where do you get your truth from? Your beliefs about where the world came from or why we're here or, what's right and wrong, or where everything goes after you die. Where do you get your beliefs from? Because Jesus says he gets his beliefs from himself. He says, I'm the true one. In other words, we don't believe that truth is personal. Christians believe truth is a person. You see, whatever is true has come from the nature of God, because God is true. And whatever we believe, we believe it's right or true or good, because it comes from the Lord, and he is true. Jesus said uh, he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. And he says here he's holding something. It says, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. If you read in Isaiah chapter 22, it talks about this real person who had this key of David. Um, It could have been a literal, like he was in charge of the palace, right? David was a famous king, but um, from then on, he was just commemorated, he was just kind of described as one of the most famous kings and. God told David from his line would come a ruler who would rule forever. All right. So when it says here, I have the key of David, the key is symbolic for authority. And so Jesus says here, I have the authority that God promised to David's ruler. I have that authority. The key to open entrance into the kingdom of God, the key to close off entrance into the kingdom of God. The bottom line is Jesus is holding the key that gets you access to God, all right? He's holding it. Who do you think Jesus is? If I were to ask you to write a one-page paper of who Jesus is, what would you say? Would you say, well, he's a great, great religious guy. You know, would you say, well, he was a good teacher. Would you say he was a historical figure who taught people to love? Listen, the Bible says this, he is the holy one. He is the true one. He holds the key, granting anyone in this world access to God. That's what the Bible teaches. And so he's opening this door in front of us. Well, what doors does he open? Well, there's three doors that we can talk about. You can jot this down. The first open door would be this, salvation. The open door of salvation, meaning he opens the door so you can go to heaven. He's the one who opens the door so you can get saved. This is the primary meaning in the text. When he's saying this to to Philadelphia, when he's saying, I opened a door. He's basically, literally saying, I've opened the door for you to go to heaven. Why would he focus on that? Well, because this was a Jewish congregation that became Christians. And here's what happened. They got tossed out of the synagogue. See, the, the faith that they were rooted in, the faith, the synagogue that they went to as kids, threw them out, shut the door, and said, you're not going to heaven anymore. You are traitors. And so here Jesus is saying, no, no, no. I'm the one who opened the door. I'm the one who has the key, and no one can shut the door to heaven. There was a real big temptation for these people to go back to their old way of life, to cave into the social pressure, to give up on Christ. And Jesus said, no, 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 I'm the one who's opened the door. You go through this door. I'm the one who has the key. Let me ask you this. Do you understand that nothing and no one can get you entrance into heaven but Jesus Christ? Have you come to the point in life where you realize that the door that leads you into heaven needs to be opened, and that God gave the key to one person, and that person is Christ? Sometimes you learn the hard way what it means when someone else has your keys, right? And you can't open the door, you can't start the car. Um, You know, Lauren and I, we've been married 14 years, and pretty much every time we have exchanged car keys, something has gone wrong. It's just the only bad things happen when couples exchange cars. Well, you take my car, and I'll take yours. Then I show up at the office, and I can't get in because I realize I have her keys. Or I get a text on Sunday morning, and she's like, honey, you have my keys. I can't get the kids to church. And I'm like, oh, I've got the van keys. We did it again. And this has happened several times. Uh, but most recently, uh, I was supposed to take Jared to, to school. And so it was like, you know, it was like 8, 25, and his bell's about to ring. And I'm like, where's my keys? Where's my keys? Where? Oh, I think Lauren's got them. So I called her, and sure enough, she's on 294 headed for Wheaton, and she's got my keys in her coat pocket. And I'm like, oh, no, I don't have my keys. So I was like, well, Jared, it's 32 degrees out." I'm like, get your coat on. We're riding bikes to school. So we rode bikes to school through snow. He's like, I mean, it was tough. Uh, And and he got to school. It was freezing cold. Why? Because I didn't have what? I didn't have my key. Someone else had my key. Understand this. God gave your key to someone else. You can't go up to the door and get your way in. You can't open this door. God gave your key to his son. His son has your key. Where's my key? Where's my key? When you're standing in front of the gates, it's too late. Where's my key? Where's my key? Christ has it. He's got it now. He says what I open, no one can shut. When you realize who he is, that he's the holy one who never sinned. When you realize he's the true one who came so that you can know the way to God. When you realize that he has the key, you understand you must trust him to get you entrance into God's heavenly kingdom. And nobody else has the key. Christ is the only way. Have you come to the point where you understand that God has given you entrance into his heavenly kingdom, but he's put your entrance in the hand of his son? Have you come to his son and asked for forgiveness for sins? Have you realized why Jesus came into the world to die on the cross? Have you believed he was thrown in a tomb, that he rose again, that now he's living even though he died, and he alone can give you eternal life? Have you gotten to that point where you realize who Jesus is and what he did for you? Maybe today's the day that you do realize that. But you need Jesus to open the door into heaven before you. Go through it, he's saying, go through it, and he's telling these Jewish Christians who converted to Christ, he's telling them, don't go, don't go back, don't get away from this door, keep coming. Keep coming through this door, I'm going to save you. Here's the next one, though, write this down. The open door of increased ministry. Uh, salvation and increased ministry. Uh, meaning the Apostle Paul from time to time would say things like, you know, I'm going to stay in this city longer because God has opened a, a door of effective ministry for me here. Meaning he describes new ministry or, or his witness his ability to tell people about Jesus, he calls that an open door, all right? So biblically, we can say that an open door could be an additional opportunity for ministry. Our church is living this right now, right? Listen, what we have in front of us is not a facility opportunity. What we have is not a chance to get all the people ready to work on the building. What we have is a chance to get the building ready to work on the people, am I right? All right? The building's not about the building. The project is not the building. The project is the people. We're getting the building so we can see God do work in the people. Amen? This is, an, this is a ministry opportunity to do more ministry and to do ministry better. Hey, listen, God is entrusting us with so much. You know, when we first started the church, we maybe on a good day had 30, 35 kids showing up to church, and we were able to minister to them. Did you know, we, we've been having like 75 kids coming Sunday morning to our children's ministry. Think about that. This is the next generation of believers who we get a chance, a slim window, to pour into them before they go out into this world, right? 75 kids a week. I mean, think about how we can serve them by offering an Awana program or VBS. And hey, I'm excited. All right, I'm excited about getting the kitchen clean and the counters wiped down. That's more important to some people than others, right? But I'm really excited to see new ministries launched to see more people show up, right? Hey, how many of you started coming to Harvest before we were at Stag High School? Just put your hand up if that was you. All right, how many of you didn't start coming to harvest until after we made the move to stag? Go ahead, put your hand up. All right, now look around. Come on, hold them up nice and high. These are all new people who came after we took the risk and made the move. Now raise your hand if you started coming to harvest after we left stag. <laughs> see, nobody now. But a year from now, I'm going to ask that, and guess what? We're going to see all these new faces. Our signs are up five hours a week now, and then they're all put away in a trailer. We're going to have like 15,000 cars a day driving past our building, all right? So these are people, this is an open door of new ministry that God has given us. I'm really excited about that. The church in Philadelphia, I th- we can't be sure, but I think in addition to Jesus saying, I've opened the door of salvation, I think he's trying to show them that they also have an open door of new ministry going on. Because we don't know what they were going through, we don't know what he meant, but Did they have a chance? Were were other cities saying, hey, send some of your people to tell us about this Jesus? Did they have a chance to send out missionaries? Was Jesus trying to tell them that now that they were kicked out of the synagogue officially and others were wondering what happened, this was an open door to start telling people about Jesus? We don't know. But I think that there were things going on that Jesus would call an open door. Okay? Maybe they didn't even see it that way, but Jesus was like, listen, I opened a door for you to do more ministry, reach more people, tell more people what I've done. This is an open door. Take it. Seize it right now. Here's the next one. Open door of salvation, open door of increased ministry, and open door of, write this down, specific opportunities. Uh, specific opportunities. Mean, meaning this, sometimes you feel like something came about, like a job opportunity or person you met, and you're like, man, God really opened a door. Right? Have you had that happen before? You're like, I think God worked some things out and God set an opportunity in front of me. Uh, That would be a specific opportunity that God opened up for you. But hey, be careful with this one. Be careful with this one. Okay, sometimes Christians try and say God opened a door and you're like, did God really do this? Like, you know, God gave me this chance to move to Vegas and sing as an Elvis impersonator. Like, wow. Okay. Or, or other people like, yeah, God brought this alcoholic boyfriend into my life, and he's so dreamy. And you're like, did God really do that? Uh, let me just say, be careful. A young, a young man who was just out of college getting on his feet, trying to get his life going said to me once, well, God's really opened an opportunity for me to sit at home and chat online all day through these games and tell people about Jesus. I'm like, wait a minute. God made it a possibility for you to not work, not get a job, sit at home and do nothing? I don't think God did that. I think you're doing that. <laughs> So be careful, okay, be careful. Don't write God's name over every door you feel like entering, okay? Don't use God's name to justify something that other people are telling you is a bad decision. This is a real gray area. Is this a specific opportunity God brought in front of me? Is this a door God opened? Don't be too quick to put God's name over that door. But I would like to think that if you've been walking with Christ for several years, that you have a few stories to tell. Times when God opened a door for you. Times when when God directed your life in a special way, and you know he gets the credit. Uh, Man, I could be up here all day just telling you my stories, but um, Lauren and I, when we got married, neither of us saw ministry as being in our future. Uh, She didn't know she was marrying a pastor. I didn't know she was going to become a pastor's wife. God surprised us with that. So after going through that discovery process of finding out this is what God was calling us to do, uh, our church had the faith to hire me as a youth pastor I had never even attended a youth group. I had never even taken one course at a Christian college, right? And they want me to be Pastor Ryan. Do you want to see a picture of Youth Pastor Ryan? Do you want to see a picture? Here's Youth Pastor Ryan. Are you you laughing at me or are you laughing with me? (laughs) That was Youth Pastor Ryan. We were a part of this church from 2002 to 2008, uh, we sold our building as a church, Crossroads Church. we had to move into a school, isn 't that interesting? So we, I had to build the road crew. I was the Mike Melody of my last church. here 's our road crew. The first day we were on road crew was the coldest day in decades, uh, and, uh, and uh, all these guys were just so faithful. It was freezing cold out. 6:30 am. a year and a half I was there. I was also the drummer on the worship team. So wow, God made it possible for me to be on staff at a church when I had never even attended a youth group. God opened that door. God opened a door for me to go to Moody, and he sent people into our lives to pay. I didn't have to pay a penny. I mean, over $25,000 in school bills, and people just kept blessing us. God opened that door, right? And then when I felt like it was time, God was calling us to do more, to maybe even, I didn't even know what. I didn't even know what. But God's calling me to do more. He's, he's about to open a door. I don't even know what, right? My, our small group praying about it. And uh, finally, I can show you where I was standing in Rolling Meadows at the Big Harvest campus. I could show you where I was standing when I was talking to this guy who I didn't even know, he was in charge of training church planters for harvest. Okay, and, I, and I said to him, I, I remember this is the first time it ever came out of my mouth. I think God's calling me to plant a church. And then I was like, did I just say that? Where did that come from? I didn't know where that came from. I didn't even tell Lauren about that. Like, what's <laughs> And he's like, hold on. And then he got the other guy who was walking by at that moment. Hey, come over here. There's and the two of them were in charge of recruiting and training church planters for Harvest. So later that night, we talked again. And I called Lauren that night. I was sitting in the parking lot of Harvest Elgin. And I said, I think God just changed our lives. I, I don't know for sure, but I, I think God just opened a door and changed our lives. And she's like, Okay, when are you going to be home? And so then we started talking about it. But I was right. That was a moment when God opened a door that we had to go through with courage, and that led to this, right? Here's a picture of my training center class. Uh, these are several guys who went out and planted at churches in different places, and uh, there's Pastor James and Kent Shaw and David Jones who helped to train me. And then we launched a church, and here's the next picture of our, you know, new baby church, just about a year old, and there's a family picture at our first building that we got to rent. Uh, you know, God opened a door for us to be in that building. God opened a door for us to be in Payless, uh, right? Right? I'm sure you've got stories of doors that got open, but here, this church in Philadelphia, they had specific opportunities. And they had to seize them. They had to seize them. You can almost tell, though, that Jesus, because he is the chief shepherd, understands that their feelings are tempting them to not go through the door. Um, and so if you check out verse 8, he says here, I've set before you an open door. No one is able to shut. Then he says, I know that you have but little power. He's kind of telling them what they're going to tell him. We're we're not very big. We're not very courageous. We can't really go through this door. This is going to be too challenging. And he's like, I know. I know you've got little power. I know there are bigger churches out there. I know you don't have much money. He's like telling them. He's talking to this small church with a lot of faith. He's like, I know. I know, but I want you to do it. Don't let your limitations stop you from following me. And Hey, maybe you feel outgunned. Maybe you feel like the people around you, you know, who are trying to get you away from Christ, you feel like, man, it's just, there's a lot of pressure. And he's like, hey, I know, I know. He says, but you've kept my word. He says here, don't veer from my word. Don't veer from my word. Maybe you've been following what happened earlier this week with World Vision. Yeah, World Vision, the organization on the right track. And then, whoop, whoop, we, you know, we support uh, gay marriage in our organization. And, and then everyone writes them and says, hey, you know, th- this is like what the Bible says and we'd appreciate it if you kind of keep you know, that biblical integrity. And so, you know, after they lose all this funding, then they veer back, you know? And it's like, where's the integrity? Like, make up your mind. Are you going to be a Christian organization and gracefully hold to these values, or are you going to veer? And Jesus knows when we stay on the right track, and Jesus knows when we veer uh, off track from what the Bible calls us to, to believe. He says, don't swerve. Don't veer from my word. And he says, don't deny my name. Don't deny my name. So, hey, go through the open door. Here's number two. Write this down. Don't let imposters stop you. Don't let imposters stop you. So first Jesus is talking to them about their own feelings that might get them to stop following him. Now he talks to them about the people around them who are going to try and drag them off path. So it says here in verse 8, I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. He says, I know you have little power. You've kept my word. Verse 9, Behold, I'll make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I'll make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. What was going on is these so-called Jews, Jesus calls them the synagogue of Satan. So they were like apostate Jews. They didn't even believe. They were just Jews by name. And Jesus says they're lying. They're saying their one thing. They're lying. They're imposters. He, this is harsh. They're the synagogue of Satan. Okay, He's saying that their church thing that's going on, their synagogue thing that's going on, isn't from me. They're lying. Uh, Do you know one of the, who's the most famous liar of all times? Who would it be? Do you know who it is? Yeah, Satan is. But you know, in our day and age, I'd say it's Pinocchio. What Jesus is saying is, I know you're dealing with this. All right? Hey, are you having to put up with people in your lives who are difficult? People who are liars? Are you having to put up with people? Listen, twice, twice in verse 8, Jesus says, I know, I know. And then he says, and I know the people. Who are making your life miserable. These are not God's people. Doesn't it frustrate you when people call themselves religious or Christians and you know they're not? Doesn't that frustrate you? Like when the politicians are talking about God and showing up to the prayer breakfasts and you you know they want votes. It's like just stop already. Doesn't it frustrate you when the actors or actresses get up on stage and they thank God and, and they're thanking God for the award as if He's the fan that handed down that award to them, right? And and it's like, really? Like, I'm pretty sure that movie, you broke all of his commandments. And you think he's your fan who's giving you this award? Like, like Jesus isn't above saying there are certain people who are saying that they believe in God and they're with me and they're lying. They're lying to themselves and they're lying to me, right? And when there's that duplicity, when there's that double standard, there's the people around who are confused and who are tempted to get dragged into the false thing, Right? But then there's the genuine believers who get persecuted for daring to stand up for what is right. He says, I know, I know. And don't let imposters stop you. Don't let imposters stop you. Uh, I think when it comes to dealing with difficult people, uh, people who don't see the truth, uh, people in your family, people at your job, maybe your boss or your friends, they're not the real thing. Maybe they even t- talk to you like you really need to hear what they have to say to you. Like you're their project and they're going to try and fix you. And, or a teacher who really wants to knock faith out of you. And you're like, oh, how do I deal with these people? Jesus is like, hey, I will vindicate you. Don't take it into your own hands. That's not your job. Let me take care of it. Do you know the Bible calls us to not retaliate, but just to be gracious with those who oppose us? who believe different things, who or who maybe come at us and, and challenge us for what we believe. We're supposed to be loving and we're supposed to be gracious. Uh, you don't have to turn there, but let me just read to you Romans 12 uh, from 17 on. Let's, just let this minister to you. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Don't be overcome by evil, overcome evil with good. Hey, have people hurt you recently? Have people challenged you ungraciously? Have people pressured you? Listen, don't let them drag you off path. Okay, But don't let them drag you into it either. Be gracious, be Christ-like, be kind, and trust that the love of God is trying to get them to repent and trust that the justice of God will faithfully repay anything that they have done to you. Jesus says they will bow before you and apologize. These are the Jews who persecuted the Christians and threw them out of the synagogue. And here I think this looks ahead to when Christ returns, right? One of the things he's going to do is he's going to make those who persecuted the church come, and he says I'm going to make them Fall at your feet and apologize for what they did to you. Okay, Now, how many of you are loving the thought of your enemy falling at your feet and apologizing for the way they talked to you or the way they treated you? See, but you want to make it happen. But God's like, no, that's not the way my world works. I'm the one who's going to bring them. Now, this could also actually be a picture of a person who got saved, right? Who had a change of heart and he makes them show, I was wrong, I was wrong. And, And hey, pray for your enemies. Right? Pray for them. But Jesus also says, I'm not just going to get them right with you by making them apologize. Right? They'll know that I loved you. Jesus says, I will tell them I loved you and you were lying about what you and me had. Do you see what he's doing here? Jesus is not going to let those who are lying to themselves or others about their true relationship with God get away with it. He's, the time will come where he says, You said you were this, you were lying, and then they're put away from his presence forever. Jesus is going to clear up who really is on the page with him and who really isn't and who was lying all along about truly being one of God's people. This is what's coming. So number one, go through the open door. Listen, don't miss out. This is your chance. This is your chance to let Jesus, who has the key, welcome you into paradise. Number two, don't let imposters stop you. Right? Don't let imposters stop you. Here's number three. Write this down. Remain faithful and I will deliver you. Remain faithful and I will deliver you. Check out verse 10. It goes on to say in verse 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. All right, pause there for a second. You've kept my word. Jesus wants us to follow all of his commandments, right? Go and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. So one of the things he says is, I want you to patiently endure under trial. Okay, those are one of those verses that you might not like that had found its way into the Bible, but Jesus is going to let, even if you're you're doing everything right, he's going to let painful trials enter your life. Then he's going to watch how you go through it. And he's telling you in advance the pain is coming, through other people or through your circumstances. And he wants you to keep his word about patient endurance, meaning you're going through it faithfully with Christ. And trials really show the truth that's in the heart of a person. Uh, trials are God's way of sifting through who's really a Christ follower. And it's important that you may remain faithful through the trial. Why? Because the faithful will be delivered, the faithless will be devoured. That's the principle that's found here in what the Bible goes on to say. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. To try those who dwell on the earth, verse 10 says. What does that mean? He goes on to say, I'm coming soon. So I think here he's referring to the end when Christ returns. And do you know that it says here that it's going to be a pain-filled trial? The world's going to end, according to the Bible, with a seven-year period of tribulation. All right? We believe that that's literal. We believe that after the seven years of tribulation, that there's going to be a thousand years where Christ rules the earth, this earth. Before it's ever changed. Not heaven in the biblical sense of the word, but a restored earth. We would be therefore what's called pre-mill. We believe we're living before the millennial kingdom. And Jesus is getting his church, he's not just saying this to Philadelphia, he's saying this to his church. He says, hey, I'm coming soon. I'll keep you from the hour of trial that's about to come on the whole world, but you have to be one of mine. You have to show yourself to be faithful to me, Okay. We're not going to get into the debate here about what he means by when he's going to keep them from trial, but I'll just say this. Some people and even some of our elders believe that what what that means is that at the beginning of the tribulation, God grabs his church and takes them out of it, right? Other people believe that just as when Israel was in Egypt, God keeps them through the tribulation, but he shows them a special spiritual protection throughout so that he keeps you here through the tribulation and at the end, then he comes and he, he draws you up and then He uh, returns with you. Uh, We have people in our church who believe both things. Someone once said, don't join the planning committee, join the welcoming committee. I like that. Prepare to welcome him back. Don't try and plan it out. But it says, remain faithful and I'll deliver you. Let me ask you this. Are there some things in your life, some painful things that God has walked you through? Like chapters in your life that you wish weren't even written. You don't know why God chose to put that chapter in your life. But maybe you reach the end of it and you realize God did some things, right? Maybe you realize that God will allow things in your life that he wants you to patiently endure. God saved you from some painful things. Maybe there are things that he prevented before they happened or things where he shortened the duration of it or the intensity or or things where he allowed it to run its full course, but he walked you through it every step of the way. Do you have some stories like that? See, because every one of God's children will suffer like the world, but he will be with you. So he'll show that you're different. He'll show that you're different. And trials show who truly loves Jesus. And trials show who Jesus truly loves. That's what trials are for. And maybe you feel like, man, why does God have to give me closed doors? Why does he have to give me suffering? Why don't, why don't we have a God who just gives me good things and open doors and blessings? And, okay, try that with your kids this week. Only say yes for one week only. Just say yes to everything your child asks you. Just for one week. I don't care how old they are. All right. And when you get back from your third trip to Disney in the same week, then next week you'll realize why God says no sometimes, right? And as you look back over your life, there are some things you wanted that God said no, and you know now that's a really good thing that he did. Check this out. Maybe you want God to give you nothing but green lights in life. You want him to just pave your road with open doors and, and the thought that he would put a wall in your way or allow painful people to hurt you. Why would he let that happen? Uh, because trials show that you love Jesus, that you really love him, that you're not just in it so that he can shower blessings on you from above, right? Right? Trials show that Jesus is not your piñata, right? Trials show that you really love him as Lord. And trials show his opportunity to love you in a special way, in a way like he doesn't love those around you who aren't his followers, but he wants to. To try those on the hour of trial. The The end end is here referred to as like a trial, like a courtroom scene. So why would God let the world end so horribly? Well, because the pain squeezes out the truth about a person's faith. Okay, and when, when all hell's breaking loose on the earth, it's a good way to show what's really in your heart. There's no hiding it. And he says, remain faithful and I'll deliver you. Remain faithful through trial. And he gives us uh, four sub-points here. He gives us four outcomes of if you remain faithful. So you can jot this down. Remain faithful, why? So no one seizes your crown. So no one seizes your crown. He says in verse 11, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. Sometimes a crown can be descriptive of a spiritual reward for faithfulness. I think here it's best to see this crown as a crown given to anybody who crosses the finish line into heaven. It's the crown of eternal life. Meaning there are some former Jews who are, thinking of trusting christ and they're going to the church and maybe even they got baptized but they're really in their heart still undecided because they go to the family party and grandma's still giving them the guilt trip about why they left the synagogue so they're undecided but they're kind of doing christ stuff but they're kind of still doing and the book of hebrews lays this whole thing out if you read it and what jesus is warning them is if you get talked out of following me and you go back you have let someone steal eternal life right from under your nose They took your crown, meaning you're not going to heaven. If you make that choice to walk away from me and go back to your old way and give in to the pressure, you're not going to heaven. He's trying to get them to go through the door that he's opened before them. Hey, don't let anyone seize your crown. Don't let anyone talk you out of following Christ. Don't let anything in this life prevent you from throwing your whole soul into Christ's hands. He opened the door. Here's the next one. No one will seize your crown, and so you'll conquer You'll conquer. It says here, no one will seize your crown. Verse 12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Uh, the word conquer is a really strong descriptive way of showing how this world's going to end. Okay, if you haven't already realized, there's a battle between good and evil. That pans out, that plays out in a thousand different ways in your city and in our world. There's a raging battle in heaven between good and evil. And that war is going to end and God's going to win that war. Okay, and he's going to put evil away from him forever. Name a sin you want in heaven. Get to heaven on the first day, someone steals your iPhone. In heaven? Do you want sin in heaven? Answer, not even a little sin? How does God get rid of sin? Well, those people who are eternally committed to their depravity will be forever put out of his presence. It's a righteous and just thing that he does. That's called you will conquer. If you're on his side, you will be on the... The righteous side you will be on the good side and you'll be able to enjoy sinless perfection forever but if not if you choose to not follow him if you choose your sin over him you won't conquer then he says this you can write this down so no one will seize your crown so you'll conquer so you'll be a pillar in the temple write that down so you'll be a pillar in the temple this is really a, a very interesting way for christ to say this to a jewish community this book was written late 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 80s 90s maybe AD. so christ is long gone Do you know what happened in A.D. 70? Jesus had told his disciples, they were looking at the temple, this temple's amazing, and he's like, yeah, it's all going to get torn down. See, because they rejected Christ, and so in A.D. 70, the Roman army came against the city. There was an uprising in Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple and burnt it to the ground. So by the time they received this letter, these Jews, like it was their 9-11. Okay, if I say to you 9-11, you know exactly what I mean. You know, some of our uh, prized architecture, our buildings, crumbled in flames to the ground. Okay, you would, there would be emotion behind that. Am I right? Am I right? This is how they felt about their temple. Their temple was their 9-11. It got burnt to the ground. It was still in ashes, and they hoped, maybe we could rebuild it. Maybe we could put... It still hasn't been rebuilt. All right? There's only one wall left to show that God promised He would destroy it. He did destroy it because they trusted their religion and not their God. So listen, when God says to a struggling Jewish Christian who's thinking of going back to the old way, and he says, hey, I'll make you a pillar in my temple. What does that mean? It's a jarring reminder that if they put their faith in that, they'll be destroyed, just like the earthly temple. But if they put their faith in Christ, they'll never be destroyed. You see, Jesus is setting up a spiritual temple. The temple is his church. It's the place where he dwells. And to say that you'll be a pillar in the temple, let me explain what that means. Here's a, di- here's a picture of the temple. It's not the real temple. That guy is not a giant. This is just a remake of the temple. He made it. But you see that big building? This was uh, Herod's temple. This is the temple Jesus would have known. That giant building, if you walked into that building, there would be an inner room. That room is called the Holy of Holies. That was the earthly place of God's special kingly presence. Guess how many people got to go in that room each year? One. Guess how many times they got to go in that room each year? One time, one person. To show you what? That God's presence was not open to us in our sinful condition. All the worshipers would gather in the courtyard of the men, the courtyard of the women. Do you see those fences there on that side and that side? The Gentiles were not allowed past those barriers. If they crossed that barrier, they got killed right there. So for... For now, the Bible to say to Jew and Gentile alike in this church in Philadelphia, I will make you a pillar in the temple. The word for temple doesn't mean the temple grounds. It means the inner sanctuary. You will be in the presence of God, the holy presence of God for all eternity. They may have put you out of the synagogue. I'm going to put you in my holy presence forever. That's a promise. Hey, remain faithful and I will deliver you. I'll make you a pillar in the temple and give you unrestricted access to a holy God for eternity, and only I can do that. Here's the last one. No one seizes your crown, so you'll conquer, so you'll be a pillar in the temple, and so you'll be marked as his. So you'll be marked as his. He goes on to say, uh, the temple of my God, verse 12, and uh, he says, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. So Jesus is like imagining, Jesus is picturing himself like with a sharpie, and he comes up to you, and he starts writing names on you. You know, he writes the name of the new city of heaven, the name of his God, his own name. Why? Because he's marking you as his own. Wouldn't that make evangelism a lot easier if when someone became a Christian, Jesus just tattooed spiritually, Jesus right across their forehead. Then we know, oh, we need to talk to this guy. You know it. and if anyone lies, oh, I'm a Christian. No, you're not. Look in the mirror. Like, He's, he's portraying his relationship with us as one where he marks you out. You're one of mine. You're one of mine. You're going to be in the city of heaven forever, right? And understand that the Bible teaches that there is no other name by which we can be saved. It's his name that he puts on us, okay? What would it be like if there you are trying to get into heaven and he comes up and he's like, I'm going to put my name on you. You know, yeah, I'd prefer a different name. Huh? Yeah, there's this other guy who really made a religious difference in me, and, and he. I read his books. I'd like you to put his name on me. Uh, I, there's only one name I'm writing. <laughs> it's mine. I'd like his name on me. He promised me I can get in there too. He lied. He lied. It's interesting that here Christ is talking about saying who's his and implying who's not. And you have to ask yourself if you are his. Or if you're not. We're citizens of heaven, the Bible says. We have dual citizenship. We're just here passing through for a time. Christ could come back tomorrow. He could come back. Then we're citizens of heaven. And he's trying to encourage this church in Philadelphia. Hey, seize this opportunity. Get ready for heaven. Go through the door. Minister for me. Do what I've called you to do. Follow me. And he gives them all these reasons why. He wants you to know that you're secure with him forever. Listen, the door to paradise is open right before you. He wants you to not turn around. He wants you to go through it. The opportunity to serve his purpose in this life is right before you. He wants you to serve him without fear. I want to give you a chance to pray right now in response to what you heard. And listen, do you know that you're saved? Do you know that Christ will welcome you into heaven? Maybe that's why God brought you here this morning. I want to give you a chance to pray also. Let's close our eyes, let's bow our heads, and let's pray. Lord Jesus, we understand your word is true. And we thank you, Lord, that you have opened before us a door that no one can shut. Jesus, thank you for coming down from heaven to live the perfect life, to die on the cross, to open the way for us to be saved. I wonder here, Lord, if there are some who don't have confidence that they'll be with you forever. But today you've made it clear to them who Jesus is and what he did. Lord, today you've shown them that Christ is the Holy One, the true one, the one who holds the key to paradise forever. Lord, we're so grateful that you made a way for sinners to be with you forever. And I just want to give people here an opportunity to repent and put their faith in Christ. They may want to pray something in their own hearts like this. Father in heaven, thank you for your patience with me. Here and now, I repent of my sins and ask Jesus to be my Savior. I recognize and understand that Jesus alone has the key, that you've honored him. And I trust Jesus to get me into heaven. Forgive my sins. Come into my life and use me for your purposes. Help me to know that I will be a pillar in your temple, that I will be in your presence forever. Give me that hope. Give me that joy. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.